You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1863rd edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 27th of January 2022. The editor of this edition is Katrina, the producer is Roger and your readers are Sue and Neil. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. And we start as always with the headlines. And my first headline is loss of NHS dentists is third worst in country. Residents voice frustration over ongoing parking issues. State of the art attack helicopters undergo testing at Watersham. Panto overcomes challenges to entertain 22,333. A charity-run emergency dental unit is to visit Bury St Edmunds for a second time. Dentaid, which usually provides free dental care for the homeless and vulnerable, as well as third world countries, will be stationed at the Thomas Clarkson Centre, formerly known as the Hinman Centre in Hospital Road, on February the 3rd. The unit has been paid for by seven Bury St Edmunds town councillors. After record numbers visited the unit, many in pain, during a two-day visit last November. The news comes as new NHS data reveals West Suffolk lost 34 NHS dentists between 2020 and 2021, down from 164 to 130. The 21% drop is the third largest in the country. Town Councillor Darren Turner said on behalf of the Toothless in Suffolk campaign, of which he is also a member, said, As we have seen recently, people are having to take extreme measures to deal with dental issues, including removing their own teeth. Record numbers of people were treated by Dentaid on the days they were buried last year, including cancer patients who were unable to access dental treatment as part of their treatment. For a dental charity to have to provide this kind of treatment in 2021 in Bury St Edmunds shows the level of government failure to deal with the issue. NHS England data shows that more than 2,400 NHS dentists were lost nationwide in the past year, with the British Dental Association warning there would be a significant numbers to follow. The organisation's Dental Practice Committee chairman, Sean Charles, said, NHS dentistry is now hanging by a thread with patients facing up to two-year waits for routine checkups. ups 
Town councillors Donna Higgins, Katie Parker, Diane Hind, Kevin Hind, Darren Turner and Creel Boucher and Cliff Waterman have funded the Dentaid visit through their locality budgets. It has cost around £3,200 and will include a third visit later in the year on a date yet to be confirmed. Dentaid has stressed that the three dentists who will be working on February the 3rd will be performing tooth extractions and temporary fillings only for people in pain. A main focus will also be around oral health care education. Councillor Higgins said, I was a volunteer during Dentaid first visit and a group of us spoke about the visit afterwards. But funding another two visits in total, like any of our initiatives, we are responding to what we see as a real need in our community. Councillor Parker said, I get consent messages from residents asking if I know where to get an NHS dentist. And the answer is, no, there isn't one. I see people in pain and who are suffering that can't get near an NHS dentist. People that have been dropped from their NHS dentist for no good reason. Dentists that have been closed their doors completely to NHS dentists. These residents can't afford to go private and they shouldn't have to when we pay taxes for this. The Toothless in Suffolk campaign launched this year has been calling for access to NHS dental provision for all. The group organised in March in Bury last year and also launched a petition. It organised the first Dentaid visit for free, with more than 74 people treated over two days. The British Dental Association, the BDA, says the problem lies in the nature of NHS contracts and has been campaigning for reform. Joe Churchill, MP for Bury St Edmunds, said, I have been in constant dialogue with the Department of Health and Social Care, Ministers and the NHS England with regards to the lack of the NHS dentistry in Bury St Edmunds and indeed across Suffolk. I urge the Minister to continue the dialogue with the BDA, which I initiated during my time at the Department of Health, to ensure we have a dental contract in place that works for both dentistry and patients. I am also in regular communications with Ed Garrett, Chief Officer of Suffolk and North East Essex Interrogated Care System, and others in order to bring more dental provision into the system as quickly as possible. Residents of a housing estate say they are becoming increasingly frustrated with issues surrounding parking. Howard Estate householders in Bury St Edmunds are complaining of the lack of resident parking due to double yellow lines that were painted several years ago. The lines appeared at the entrances to resident parking areas off Beaton's Way, removing enough space for three or four cars to park. Residents were confused as to why the lines had been painted in the first place, with some believing it was because an ambulance could not gain access to a particular house, while others think bin lorries were unable to reverse in. 
Salon owner Anne Thompson said it was unfair that all the resident parking areas had been dealt with in the same way. She said, I spoke to somebody at Suffolk Highways and they told me the issue originally wasn't even our parking area. It was further up the road where there are three parking lots. Apparently in an ambulance couldn't get into the back spaces to get to a house, which, fair enough, is a very important issue. But then we got put under the same umbrella, even though our parking area wasn't an issue for that. She said she hoped the council would decide to remove the double yellow lines. Removing the lines would be a start because they're not needed. It's almost like a money-making scheme. Why on earth do they need to send parking wardens around here? Another resident who asked not to be named said other vehicles had also started to use the parking areas. You've got caravans, vans, people dropping off children during the day. It's just a nightmare. My car has been vandalised several times because I couldn't park in the car park. Parking in nearby Anglian Lane is not ideal because of the traffic on that road and also in the evenings it becomes a drug drop-off point. A spokeswoman for Suffolk Highway said the double yellow lines along Beaton's Way were installed several years ago to ensure the safety for pedestrians and cyclists. Following an incident which resulted in emergency vehicles unable to gain access, double yellow lines within the access roads were installed to prevent cars from double parking and restricting access. The AH-64E Apache attack helicopter which can reach speeds of up to 186 miles per hour, has improved sensors, upgraded weapon systems and heightened communications capability. They are also able to detect 256 potential targets at once, prioritising the most urgent in seconds at a range of 10 miles. 36 more of the choppers are expected to arrive at the station by summer 2024 as part of a 2.3 billion deal with Boeing, who will maintain and support the new fleet. And 45 new jobs will be created at Watersham as a result of the deal. Defence Procurement Minister Jeremy Quinn said, There can be no doubt these impressive Apache helicopters will help the Army sustain its battle-winning capabilities in future operations. In addition to its vital defence purpose, this cutting-edge technology will create and support hundreds of UK jobs. AH-64Es are already in operation with the US Army and have a range of 257 nautical miles. The programme is part of an ambition to revolutionise the country's armed forces as set out in the government's recent Future Soldier Announcement, boosting funding in military technology by $8.6 billion in the next 10 years. The Deputy Chief of the General Staff, Lieutenant General Sir Chris Tickle KBE, said... The AH-64E is a truly world-beating capability that will, alongside other capabilities we are introducing, ensure we succeed. The test flights underway, the AH-64Es are expected to reach operational capability next year.
It has been an absolute joy. That is the verdict after the Theatre Royal's highly successful pantomime season closed on Sunday. Cinderella delighted 22,333 people at 85 shows over eight weeks, signalling a resounding return to form after 2020's pantomime was postponed due to the pandemic. For Owen Calvert-Lyons, artistic director, it was his first pantomime season at the Westgate Street Theatre after taking on his role in June 2020. It has been a wonderful experience. Cinderella is a great story to tell, and I couldn't have hoped for eight more wonderful actors to work with and such a great team here at Theatre Royal. And it has been a huge team effort, he said. It has been a really challenging environment in which to make theatre in all sorts of ways. Covid meant we had the threat looming over us all the time that the production could be cancelled, which would have been absolutely devastating. The pantomime brings us the income to allow us to run for the rest of the year. The stakes were very high in those terms. We were very fortunate that none of our cast caught COVID, but in our young chorus, about a third contracted it during the run. It meant some shows, so it meant some were missing for rehearsals or some for shows. Our dance captain sometimes had to rework whole dance sequences just before the show started. Most of the time, the audience would never have known. In addition to the challenges of COVID-19, Brexit caused the cost of materials to rocket and made some items difficult to get hold of. Every aspect has meant more work for us this year, but it was completely worth it, said Owen. 1. The Panto has our biggest audience reach. 22,333 people saw it, which is extraordinary. It is wonderful for us, for us to have brought joy to so many over Christmas. 2. The Panto is the fuel that allows us to run this theatre for the rest of the year. Financially, it has been a great success, and we have made real headway pulling out of the financial challenges of the past two years. The feedback has been wonderful, with so many people telling us they've been coming to the Panto for years, and this was their favourite. And while it is still another ten months before 2022-23 pantomime The Legend of Robin Hood opens, almost 5,000 tickets have already been sold. And now we're going to move on to some general news. A Berry St Edmunds tool and workshop equipment manufacturer has been given the go-ahead to build a new 200,000 square foot warehouse. Permission was granted by West Suffolk Council for Seeley to build the warehouse at Suffolk Park, close to the company's existing sites in Kempson Way. Seeley, which has been trading for more than 40 years, sells tools and equipment to dealers across the UK and internationally, who in turn supply the automotive engineering, agricultural markets. The company also runs Delonda, which supplies home garden and leisure products direct to the consumer via online channels. Mark Sweetman, a group projects director for Seeley and Delonda, say our roots and our future are firmly established in Bury St Edmunds 
and we are making the significant investment to ensure that we provide a modern, clean working environment for all our staff. As one of the largest private sector employers in the town, with 430 employed by Sealy and 16 people employed by Delonda, both businesses have been significant growth over the last year. This new development will provide us with the increased space we need to accommodate additional stockholding, as well as the anticipated extra staff we will need to employ. Wunsek Kienava, the architects behind the plans, will be leading the delivery of the construction project. Director Craig Weston said, When creating the designs for the new warehouse and the office accommodation, we have focused on ensuring that not only is there plenty of parking and cycling facilities, but the finished building seeks to seamlessly integrate all the Sealy portfolio of buildings within the Suffolk Business Park. Sealy will be, be looking to expand and refurbish its current premises, which are now more than 20 years old. A Suffolk policeman has highlighted the importance of working within the community to tackle crime as the first ever neighbourhood policing week of action comes to a close. Sergeant Brian Culver from the Suffolk Police Rural and Wildlife Policing Team is based at Bury St Edmund Station and part of a team of four officers who cover the entire county. Their remit is wildlife crime, from hair coursing to habitat destruction. They also work between partner agencies such as Crime Stoppers to inform residents of signs of crime and how to prevent it. During the Neighbourhood Policing Week of Action, which began on Monday and aims to highlight the role officers who work in the community play, Sergeant Culver said that element of the job was at the core of his role. As police officers, we are not only working in the community, but we live in the community, he said. So we understand the problems that affect us all. The public are our eyes and ears. They hold masses of information, sometimes without even realising it, because there are crimes committed hidden in plain sight. And somebody might not bat an eyelid, but they might hold that key piece of information to help us tackle criminality. Sergeant Culver said the neighbourhood police officer role had adapted and gone more online. Neighbourhood policing has changed over the years. Traditionally, people think of the Bobby living in the house down the road. Sadly, those times are gone, but we still try and get out to the community as much as we can, and sometimes that is a little bit distant virtual contact i.e. email but equally we can do a lot of good work remotely we don't always have to meet people face to face sergeant culver also explained what the team was doing to tackle hair coursing in the county which he described as a prevalent issue he said the officers liaised with the national farmers union country land and business association and bodies beyond suffolk as most of the offenders came from outside the county. He added days of action were used to target known offenders as well. A Herringswell-based football and cycling enthusiast 
is combining his two passions to raise money for the NHS to say thank you. Lee Anderson, who has been cycling 100 miles each day while training, will cycle to each of the country's 20 Premier League football stadiums during a six-day, 750-mile trek, which will start at Newcastle's St James's Park on May the 2nd. I like a challenge, and I like the idea of using my energy and fitness for something positive, said Lee. I started cycling about four years ago, but previously I had played a lot of football. After dislocating my shoulder while playing, I then decided to give up football and started cycling instead. I've had a few broken bones in my life and had operations on my ears and my legs when I was younger. So once I decided to set up a fundraiser, the NHS seemed the obvious cause to raise money for. I would be deaf now without them and may not even be walking. But there's also the fact that they have been amazing in helping us all through this pandemic. They put their lives on the line for all of us every day and give their time and their smile because they love helping people. So this is my way of saying thank you. Lee, who has been training for five months, planned out his ideal route from the stadiums, which adds up to 751 miles and finishes at Norwich City's Carrow Road Stadium. But he's also aware that diversions, road closures and other issues may delay him or cause his route to change. There might be roadworks, bad weather or other delays, but the plan is to camp out each night if it's nice weather, and I'll start on a Monday with a plan to finish on the Saturday and watch the match against West Ham at Carry Road on May the 7th. I started out with a target to raise £800, but I'm hopeful I'll surpass that. I've had lots of messages of support, so with any luck, the donations will roll in. I'll be keeping in touch with friends and family on Facebook and my video message at the end of each day, so it will be great to have their encouragement as I go along. A village church community has welcomed into its ranks a new warden, believed to be the youngest in the region. Ben Jenkins, who's 19, is to serve as warden at St Nicholas Church in Stanningfield, having been elected to the role at an annual parish meeting in December. Ben said, The church is a really important part of community life in rural areas, and I want to ensure this continues. Lots of young people my age volunteer with different organisations. I felt called to make a difference in my local church and community. Wardens are volunteers dedicated to both the maintenance of the physical church and attending to the spiritual needs of the wider church community. Ben's appointment comes in the wake of the Growing Younger Initiative, a campaign by the Diocese of St Edmundsbury to encourage youth participation in the church. The Right Reverend Mike Harrison, Bishop of Dunwich, said, I am delighted that Ben has taken on this role. More and more young people are coming forward to serve in a variety of roles within the life of the church, and this is a great example of that happening here in Suffolk. 
Growing younger is part of the diocesan aspiration for our congregations across the country, and this appointment fits the bill very well. Benefices Rector, the Reverend Canon Sharon Potter, said, We were all really encouraged when Ben offered to step forward and take on this responsibility. It is great to see a new generation of churchgoers coming forward to offer their skills and time. A familiar face on Bury St Edmund's Market has pitched his stall for the last time. Citing the cancellation of the Christmas fair as a major factor in his decision. Darren's Olds card stall was on Cornhill for its final day on Saturday, after he decided he could not wait and see for another year. It means the trader, who had owned the stall since 2002, will have his weekends free for the first time in more than two decades. A lot of people came to say goodbye, which was good, as I wanted to say goodbye to all my customers, and I received lots of farewell gifts. It was emotional, said Darren. Market trading is in his blood, as before taking on the card stall, Darren helped out on his father's watch stall. When he heard the card stall owner had had enough, Darren said he would buy it. I thought it would be something to last me a few years and tide me over, but 20 years later, I was still there, said Darren. There have been a lot of changes in that time. The older generation of market traders moved on, retired or passed away. But the younger generation hasn't come through to replace them. My brother on the watch stall, who's 42, and I are probably some of the youngest traders left. Now we also need more coaches coming back on a Wednesday. They are not coming at the moment, and it has an impact on the market. But Darren said the cancellation of the Christmas fair was the nail in the coffin. The fair was 50% of my November turnover. Over the years, I had probably lost 10% of my turnover. But because of the Christmas fair, we got that back. To lose 50% in November and then not really get an answer from the council on whether the fair would be back this year, meant I couldn't carry on. Everyone knows what an advertisement for the town the fair is. If you speak to every market trader, I bet everyone would say they had customers throughout the year who first visit Bury for the fair. Now Darren who was on the board of the National Market Traders Federation for nearly 10 years, will enjoy his weekends off and devote more time to his rental property maintenance business, which flourished during the pandemic. I'm going to miss my customers, as I know a lot of people. My wife used to dread going shopping, as it takes us hours to get around the supermarket. I shall also miss the income, but time with my family is definitely more important, added Darren. St Nicholas Hospice's Cares Christmas tree, Christmas tree Recycling Service this year has proved, proved to be a record-breaker for the charity. Collected from across Bury St Edmunds and nearby villages as well as Haverhill, Sudbury, Mildenhall and Thetford, this year's crop of around 2,500 festive furs has raised its biggest total ever, 
£10,195, including gift aid to donations. The trees taken to the Euston estate will be turned into wood chippings and then placed around newly planted trees. Darren Devine, the hospice's house clearance and retail support manager, said, This year we have really been blown away by its success. I would like to thank everyone who used the service and all of those who donated. To have raised more than £10,000 really is fantastic and we are so grateful to everyone for their support. A special thank you must go to the Euston Estate, which has recycled all of the trees for us, free of charge. Their generosity has made such a difference to us this year, and we're so grateful. Viva Voices Community Choirs has raised £1,220 for Mind Suffolk through its Christmas concerts. The group, which has choirs in the likes of Berry St Edmunds, Stowmarket and Newmarket, sang in front of audiences for the first time in two years due to the pandemic. Graham Hopson, choir leader, said, We are proud to have raised so much for Suffolk Mind in support of the important services they offer, particularly during these uncertain and challenging times. Lizzie Tuthill, Mine Community Fundraising and Future Gifts Manager, thanked the choir for its efforts in raising the funds and said the cash would be used for growth of the charity services across the county and helping more people who are experiencing mental ill health. Head teacher John Bays and the Right Reverend Mike Harrison, Bishop of Dunwich, have officially opened Thurston CEVC Primary Academy and Thurston Preschool. Though the school opened in September 2021, school governors, members of Thedwassler Education Trust, Suffolk County Council and the construction and design teams gathered on site to mark the occasion with a ribbon-cutting ceremony. Mr Bayes said it has been extremely exciting to work closely with the school's infrastructure team at Suffolk County Council and Concertus Design and Property Consultants, who have all been fantastic at guiding us step by step on the Thurston Academy relocation and expansion. Construction of the school began in 2020, increasing the number of permanent placements from 210 pupils to 420. And the project also includes a standalone 30-place preschool. Um, now we're going to move on to our letters. And my first letter is from Mrs E. Reed, and she is from Great Barton. She heads her letter... Pensioners have done council's work. Thanks should be given to the pensioners of Great Barton who have cleared the Mill Road pavement. I personally have been fighting to get it done for four or five years, as has our county councillor Becky Hoffensberger and parish council. Local authority highways refuse on the grounds. Unfortunately, our reactive criteria for footway encroachment requires the footway to be totally obstructed before we can order works. If the footway is passable, 
albeit in single file, we are currently unable to prioritise this reactivity. Our criteria specifies that pedestrians are forced from the path onto the carriageway before we can order works. There is no such minimum width requirement beyond this. I take it young mothers with prams and children are expected to walk on the busy highways. Where are our rates being spent? How much is the path to the waste pub bub costing and how many people walk to the dump? This is a joke. Now my first letter comes from Cliff Waterman, Mary St Edmunds. I'm sure readers will agree with me that honesty is an important quality for everyone. As a child, I was told not to lie, and as a parent, I always taught my children the same thing. Now we have a situation in which the Prime Minister of the country has been accused of lying, not once, but multiple times. So I'd like to invite the Bury St Edmunds MP, Jo Churchill, to make her position on truthfulness clear. Is it wrong to lie? Is it especially wrong for public figures to lie? Should there be consequences when lies are found out? May I also ask Mrs Churchill to say once and for all whether she attended any parties when the rest of us were in lockdowns in 2020? It's hard to believe that it was only the Prime Minister's office which had bring-your-own-bottle parties. If it happened at the very top, the suspicion must be that it also happened in other departments and Mrs Churchill was a junior minister at the Department of Health. Surely it's possible to say whether or not illegal parties were being held, and whether ministers knew about them or even attended, and whether she personally was at any of them. Some readers may notice that I was the runner-up in the last parliamentary elections standing for Labour, so let me make it clear. I am not accusing Mrs Churchill of lying. In fact, thinking back to the election in 2019, I felt she ran a clean campaign, and I said so in my speech conceding defeat. The Prime Minister had to make an abject apology when he was found out. I'd like to spare our MP the shame and ridicule he has brought upon himself. Closer to home, another local MP, Matt Hancock, had to resign his ministerial post when he was caught out breaking the rules. It really does seem these two powerful politicians thought the rules did not apply to them. So I ask again, did she know about lockdown-busting parties? Did she attend any? And can she say, with hand on heart, that she and her staff followed all the lockdown rules as closely as people living here in Bury St Edmunds? And will she condemn the lies told by the Prime Minister? My letter now is from Natalie Brooks. Uh, she's a registered nurse and she is from the board chair of the RCN Eastern Region. And she heads her, her letter as Nursing staff need your support. Your readers will be aware of the well-documented pressures currently being experienced in health services, both locally and nationally. Our members providing frontline nursing care to patients under extremely challenging circumstances are exhausted. 
They are aiming, as always, to provide the highest standards of safe and effective care at a time of high demand and staffing shortages. It would be easy to blame the current staffing pressures on the COVID-19 pandemic, a combination of more patients needing COVID treatment and rising staff sickness levels due to illness and isolation. There is certainly where the government would like to pin the blame. The reality is that the current problems have been a long time in the making. For more than a decade, the Royal College of Nursing, the RCN, have been warning that the NHS and wider health and care system is so short of nursing staff that patients do not always receive the safe and high standard of care they expect. Factors such as loss of nurses from EU countries, changes to nursing student finance in 2016, a failure to award staff a fair pay rise and the continued lack of a coherent workforce plan that addresses how to retain experienced nurses as well as recruit new ones have all contributed to the extraordinary circumstances our members are now working under. While we all hope the pressures piled on by the COVID-19 will soon start to subside again, the underlying workforce shortages, declining morale and unsustainable pressures will remain. In fact, they are driving nursing staff to seriously consider leaving the job they love. It is now imperative that our political leaders act on the concerns raised by the RCN our members and others working in health services. Nursing staff don't go into the profession to deliver care that they know is below the standard they want to provide and that patients and their families rightly expect. But they need the proper resources to deliver a high standard of care. Please contact your MP and support us as we continue to promote the importance of safe staffing across the whole health and care system. And my next letter is from Roger Spiller from Ixworth, and it's on a very similar topic. I wish to thank all the NHS staff who have looked after me over past few months in my local surgery in Ixworth, in West Suffolk Hospital and Papworth Hospital. In numerous clinics and departments, they have all demonstrated sensitivity, compassion, efficiency, expertise and a willingness, indeed a compulsion, to make sure I understood what was happening to me and all the options. All of this was happening during a health and care crisis which has hit health staff heavily by the number of COVID patients, staff shortages, COVID vaccinations and little understanding or empathy from government. As a result, some parts of the system are creaking. The health and care services, as well as public health, have been seriously underfunded for a decade. Training of new staff was the first cut by the coalition government. Why? because its impact would not show for some years, with the inevitable consequences of there now being vacancies for 100,000 medical staff, that's doctors, nurses, technical and scientific experts, therapists of many specialities, 
porters and administrative staff who between them keep our clinics, surgeries, hospitals and pharmacies functioning. Even higher numbers are missing from social and residential care. The government's answer is all too often to tell us how much money they are putting into the service to employ more staff. Theresa May famously said, when asked by a nurse why pay was not being increased, there is no money tree. Well, the government found one to pay its friends for PPE, and we must presume that someone had been planting trees to grow the staff whose training would otherwise take a decade or more. This is not the first time that training has been reduced to save money in the NHS. Margaret Thatcher did the same, and it took decades after she resigned for the Labour government of Tony Blair to start to put things right, especially doctors. Having laboured for the past two years under Covid and its restrictions, extra workload and being demoralised by the death of so many patients, health staff now see the government seeking to justify number 10 parties, which were at the time prohibited. Presumably the government advisers and other political staff needed to recharge their batteries due to a heavy workload. Meanwhile, NHS staff were having problems recharging their fridges with food for their families. Twenty years ago, there was a proposal for a health service university, subsequently abandoned, which would be responsible for providing in-service training for all staff if they were capable of upgrading their knowledge and experience, no matter how low their previous academic qualifications the new pay and promotion structure, called Agenda for Change, introduced 15 years ago, relied on in-service training for its successful operation. Either shortage of staff to cover or shortage of funding has largely weakened this option. The time taken to train existing staff to upgrade is far less than starting new, totally new, employees, though that needs doing as well. Training of NHS staff must become an area protected from short-term savings as the long-term costs are higher and we can all now see the dire consequences. Uh, my last letter is from Bernard Freeman and he is from Great Barton. And he writes about his thoughts about the berry market and it really relates to the article I read a few moments ago. And he heads his letter... What has happened to our market? For over 40 years, I have always enjoyed my trip to Bury St Edmunds Market and remember when it included the cattle market. Mm. Oh, happy days! But even without the cattle market, market day was still a good visit. So many stalls selling everything you wanted. Stallholders shouting their wares everywhere. A bustle. Food stalls with queues. The tall man had everything you needed. I bought all my gardening needs there, belt and braces, literally. But because of personal circumstances, I have not been able to visit for over a year, so really looking forward to my visit. I have a blue badge, but still had to pay £3 to park. Oh well, so be it. But when I got to the market, it was half empty. There were, of course, a few stalwarts, the watchman, the gunman, etc., but there were only a handful of people and none of the stores were busy. What has happened to our lovely market? Will we ever get it back? 
with car parking prices the highest they've ever been and only half the market on a bright sunny day, what is the future? Are there any plans to revive our beautiful, busy, buzzy, delightful, happy, thriving market? Mm. Now we have uh, two features. So mine is written by Matt Hancock, MP for West Suffolk. Countryside to be proud of, he calls it. It is sometimes easy to forget how lucky those of us who live in Suffolk are to call such a beautiful part of the country home. From Thetford Forest, the largest lowland pine forest in Britain, down to Flatford and Constable County, a place so beautiful it acted as the muse and inspiration to arguably Britain's greatest landscape painter, John Constable, Suffolk's biodiversity stuns, especially in the summer months. As recently as November, the Suffolk coast and heaths were ranked one of the top ten areas of natural beauty in the UK, solidifying our enviable position as residents to a truly unique and wonderful part of the world no doubt justifying the assumed jealousy of our county neighbours. One of the things I look forward to most when I'm in the noise and fury of Westminster is to wind down the windows as I turn off the A11 and climb from the flatlands of Cambridgeshire and breath and, and breathe in the clean fresh air as I drive home through the tranquillity of the fields of Suffolk. But it is not just me and you who enjoy the scenic splendours of Suffolk, nor are we the only ones to call this oddly flat part of the country home. Over 36% of Suffolk is, nationally or locally, protected for its wildlife or landscape value. Suffolk has over 900 wildlife sites across the county and is home to a variety of creatures from hazel dormice and water voles to skylarks, yellowhammers and nightingales, stag beetles and great crested newts. From meadows and grasslands, woodlands and hedges, ponds and rivers, the countryside which we have inherited is home to a plethora of species, and we are duty-bound to nurture it. One of the many reasons these habitats and species have been so well preserved and given the chance to thrive in Suffolk is due to the fantastic work of our local councils and institutions, such as the Suffolk Wildlife Trust, which monitor and protect our natural heritage. But wildlife and scenic beauty are not all this fertile land has to offer. There is a reason why, why over a thousand years ago men and women came out of the north in longboats not just to raid and conquer, but farm and settle. The promise of fortune and adventure may have been one such reason, but the main reason historians can suggest for Vikings and their processes to uh, Anglo-Saxon migration was the fertility of the counties along our east coast of which Suffolk was one, if not the richest in this sense. Humans have farmed these lands for over 6,000 years, and if the Doomsday Book statistics are to be believed, Norfolk and Suffolk had the highest population density in the whole country at one point, due to its extensively farmed fertile land and woodland clearings. 
Suffolk is still 95% farmland, according to the BBC, second only to the Scilly Isles, which is 96%. We have made mistakes along the way, and many landscape historians condemn the post-war hedgerow losses and associated habitat destruction in Suffolk. Certainly there are many examples across the county where this episode was regrettable, destroying ancient boundaries, old lanes and moated sites, but a close examination shows that much of their value has survived and we should now be making every effort to recognise, cherish and sustain these important features and habitats. All the county's farmers have a huge role to play in helping to nurture, protect and enhance the indigenous species and habitats, with heaths and hedges being equally important in different ways. The regions of Suffolk still retain a tangible local distinctiveness, something that all farmers and all the county's residents should be proud of. Flat? Well, I prefer to think undulating. Diverse and fascinating? Undoubtedly. And my feature is written by Martin Taylor. And I suspect some of you will know that he is a great historian for Barry St. Edmunds. He, he heads it, Grave Tale of Thomas's Body. And it's the burials of Thomas Beaufort. And he lived from 1377 to 1426. Thomas Beaufort, who became an accomplished career soldier, was the third son of four to John of Gaunt and his mistress Catherine Swinford. Knight of the Garter and Duke of Exeter were just two of the many titles bestowed on Thomas, his most notable achievement being commander of the rear guard of Henry V's English army at the Battle of Agincourt in 1415. Held in great esteem by all who knew him, he also became the executor of the king's will after he died in 1422. Thomas's wife, Margaret Neville of Hornby, Lancashire, predeceased him around 1424. And just before Thomas himself died at East Greenstead on December the 31st, 1426, he left instructions in his will to be buried next to her, close to the north side of the wall of the Lady Chapel in the Abbey of St Edmundsbury. He also bequeathed funds for a free-standing monument for himself and his wife, together with a generous amount of 400 marks for perpetual anniversary masses. It so happened that in February 1772, workmen working near the tall northeast pillar came across his lead coffin. An eminent local physician, Thomas Gray Cullum, later a baronet, who had a surgery in Northgate Street, examined the deceased. He noted the extremely well-preserved state of the body, mainly due to the high-quality layers of sear cloth and the tight-fitting lead coffin. Well, for some ex inexplicable reason, Callum mutilated the corpse by severing its two hands, putting them into preserving fluid, then sending them off to the Royal College of Surgeons Museum. 
It also transpired that the good doctor carried out further investigations on the body. Many years later, these hands disappeared, despite a rigorous effort to search for them. As for the lead coffin, a local plumber paid around 15 shillings for its scrap value. But what of the cadaver? It was reburied some eight feet down in an old casket. Apparently, a postscript to this occurred in 1834, when the reburied coffin was exhumed again. The body within, now a skeleton, had a bone removed and shown at a meeting in 1849 of the Suffolk Institute of Archaeology and History, amazingly in Moises Hall Museum. There are also some strands of Thomas's hair. Now, hopefully, as far as known, Thomas Beaufort has been finally laid to rest. The long-running Christmas fair was cancelled in 2020 and 2021 due to the pandemic. This week, event organiser West Suffolk Council said no decision has been made on the 2022 fair. In a statement, a West Suffolk Council spokesperson said, it is entirely wrong to suggest any decision has been made with regard to Christmas events in Bury St Edmunds in 2022. We and our partners will be evaluating the success of the work that took place to put on a mix of events for Christmas 2021 and looking at our options. We are sorry Mr Old feels the way he does, but the pandemic meant it would have been irresponsible to encourage 130,000 people into the town centre, especially at a time when so many other locations across the UK and Europe were cancelling their events due to rising COVID-19 cases. Planning for the Christmas fair takes many months and involves a great many of West Suffolk Council staff. As Mr Old may already be aware, West Suffolk Council lobbied for grants for its market traders. The council also redeployed staff, some of whom would have otherwise been involved in planning for the Christmas fair, to prioritise getting grants paid out to market traders and thousands of other West Suffolk businesses to help support them. Alongside all of this, we are also carrying out a markets review and have engaged with market traders to get their views. Their suggestions and comments will help shape recommendations that will be considered by our councillors in due course. Now, I have um, the monthly catch-up from Bury St Edmund's Rickshaw, and they are planning for a busy year ahead. However, it has been quiet on the joyride side of things recently, what with the cold weather and the Omicron outbreak, but we have noticed a definite uptick in the number of leftover pastries and sausage rolls at the bakers we collect from at the end of each day. Is everyone on a post-Christmas diet? We're going to need a bigger cargo bike at this rate. Speaking of bigger bikes, the four-wheeled 11-seater bicycle bus we have been trialling this month has been attracted a great deal of interest both when people see it in the town and further afield, via social media, press and radio. We have some more evolution to do before deciding whether to pursue the project 
and seek funding for a bus for Berry. A mere consideration is how well the bus, or rather its riders, can cope with the hills in town, such as they are. Since it is made in the Netherlands and designed for the flat lands, we may find we need those extra sausage rolls to give us strength. But if all goes to plan, a berry bicycle bus will form part of an active travel scheme that encourages and enables more children to walk, cycle or scoot to school. Meanwhile, we are preparing for a busy year ahead and looking forward to supporting annual events such as Hidden Gardens and Girls' Night Out, as well as Abbey 1000 and Platinum Jubilee events this year. We also hope to be involved in the Suffolk-wide torch relay for the Festival of Suffolk in the summer. Our aim is ever to help those with limited mobility or who are experiencing social isolation to enjoy the wonderful things Berry has to offer all year round. The 60 Plus Club, which has been meeting fortnightly at the Anselm Community Centre in Bury St Edmunds for around 21 years, had its final meal and meeting on Saturday. Around 45 members of the club joined the farewell event of the group that started in 2010. Dawn Chaplin, the club's vice chairman, said, It was always a thriving club and I'm really going to miss the people who came to it and the wonderful speakers and entertainers who joined us over the years. I would just like to thank all of the members, past and present, who have given their time to the club and made it something different for me and everybody else. Also, I want to give a special thanks to Chairman Bob Cockle, who has been chairman of this great club for such a long time. We are really going to miss it. We are now coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number you have been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. As usual, we would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. So, News Talk will be back again next week. So, until then, from Katrina, Roger, Neil and Sue, it's goodbye. goodbye. been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.